Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Well, hi, and thank you for joining me. This is Dr. Fred. You're listening to another episode of Study, Grow, Know. Now, in this particular episode, we're going to cover highlights of uh, three chapters of the book of Revelation. We're getting back to that series, and it's going to be a couple of weeks before we complete it, but we're getting uh, getting close to the finish line here. We've covered most of Revelation 18 previously, and it's been a while, but we're only going to cover the last few verses of that chapter, Revelation 18, and then we're going to get into Revelation 19 and 20. And again, these are, these are highlights. Um, it's just an overview, pulling out a few important points here and there. There's a lot we could go over, but we just don't have the time to do it. And we really hope that it, it basically prompts and urges you, listeners, to do more of your own digging. So as I said, it's going to be a few weeks before we get into the last two chapters of Revelation 20 and 22. So without further ado, let's get right into it. And by the way, there is the uh, PDF transcript of the PowerPoint that is used for this particular episode. So you might want to download that and follow along if you'd like, or just, you know, look at it later at your leisure. Now, the text of verses 21 through 24 of Revelation 18 indicates, highlights the finality of Babylon's doom. It is a done deal as far as God is concerned. Now, we might like to ask, why has God seemingly waited so long? It's still in front of us. But that question simply pops up out of our own minds as we fail completely to see things from God's perspective. God's will is accomplished according to his personal preferences, and that also includes his timing. Now, without a doubt, Babylon is finally and completely destroyed at this point in the book of Revelation in John's vision. He sees it occur. Note the text of Revelation 18, 21, which says this, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Now, what's being described here is that an angel has just thrown a stone, like a huge millstone, into the ocean as a symbol of just how quickly and completely Babylon will be destroyed. And, and I believe Babylon here, as I've said before, refers to the system that has been the world's economic foundation and is multifaceted to include all sorts of evil, corruption, idolatry. It's all built on that. I also believe that during the tribulation, a physical place that may or may not be labeled or called Babylon will exist and will be seen as the headquarters of the world for the final seven years, or at least the final three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. Now, whether or not it's the capital of the world, I don't know, but it's going to be a very important port or aspect of life during those final seven years as it leads up to God's physical return in Christ. However, in God's timing, it is going to be destroyed. Nothing is going to stop that from happening. Nothing. This destruction of Babylon's system and potential physical place will occur at nearly the very end of the tribulation and will be in stark contrast to the beauty, the lack of corruption, the righteousness, near perfection, of the millennial kingdom over which Jesus will personally and physically rule. The only thing that will be better than that 
will be life after the millennium and after the great white throne judgment when Eden is restored. We'll get to that in a minute. Revelation 19, 1 through 9 moves us from what occurs on the earth to what happens in the heavenly realm immediately following the destruction of Babylon. All in the heavens praise God for destroying Babylon as his vengeance has been completed against that evil system that has governed this world and set itself up against God. And most importantly, spilled the blood of the saints over the centuries. Verse 9 specifically looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, of which all authentic Christians will take part. If you are a Christian, you will be part of that marriage supper. You will be part of it. And John saw you there. He may not have been able to pick you out of the face because there were multitudes of people, but you were part of that crowd. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 is filled with preparatory activity. Jesus readies himself to return to earth physically in order to take control and rule. The armies of the earth under the beast prepare to fight Jesus as he returns. This is referred to as the Battle of Armageddon because it occurs on the plains of Megiddo. Ultimately, Jesus destroys the beast who leads these earthly armies with the word of his mouth seen in the text as his sword. It's the sword of Jesus coming from his mouth, the sword of the Lord. We often refer to scripture as that because it refers to it itself. The Antichrist and false prophet are captured after their failed attempt to destroy Jesus, or at least keep him from returning to this earth to claim what is his. And they are then thrown into the lake of fire alive. Now, I find that fascinating because these two will be the only two individuals I'm aware of who do not gain entrance into the lake of fire without dying first. Of course, if we exclude Satan and those um, fallen angels with him, all of those beings, those groups, they are transferred to the uh, lake of fire. And so are the Antichrist and, and the false prophet. They're simply transferred there, fully alive. And notice, there is no standing before Christ in judgment. They are guilty. They know they are guilty. Jesus knows they are guilty. The world knows they are guilty. There's no question as to their guilt. The remaining armies who aligned with Antichrist and false prophet are also destroyed by Jesus. And then the carry-on birds are called from all over the earth to feast on all the dead. This is their feast, their celebration to God, their invitation to celebrate God's victory over Satan and all evil that has ensnared this world since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. So from here, the world begins its move toward the millennial kingdom, directed by Jesus and those who are with him, as seen in Revelation 20. Satan at this point is captured, And he is thrown into the abyss, bound for a thousand years, verses 1 through 3, where he will no longer be able to deceive the nations on earth. However, as we'll see it, the heart of men and women are still sin-laden. And as such, they don't seem to have to look far to find a reason to turn against our Lord, even after 1,000 years of peaceful, near-perfect living. There's also the resurrection of tribulation saints in verse 4. These people did not succumb to the pressure placed on them by society to give themselves over to the beast. 
during the tribulation. They didn't receive the mark of the beast, which made living extremely difficult. Yet they rejected the beast system in order to embrace salvation in Christ. And these saints ended up paying with their lives during the tribulation. During the tribulation. And they are resurrected and will live and reign with Jesus for the thousand years during the millennium and then beyond. Interesting note here regarding the second resurrection, verse 5. This resurrection is for the wicked. The second resurrection is for the wicked who will be raised at the end of the millennium for judgment. And they will be told why they are being sent to the lake of fire. Now, verse 6 references the first resurrection, which is interesting because it actually includes two, the tribulation saints and Old Testament saints. Christians during this present church age will have already been caught up through the rapture, whether they were alive at that point or had died previously. They will be caught up through the rapture, will be given glorified bodies and minds, and will forever walk with Jesus in perfect harmony and without any sin because the sin nature will be removed. Now, Revelation 20 7 through 10 highlights what happens at the end of the millennium. And this is interesting. Satan is released from his prison, the abyss. And the first thing he does is go out and begin deceiving people of all nations. We sometimes underestimate him because we think he is extremely ugly and repulsive. But obviously he's not. He is extremely attractive, very charismatic, very subtle. And because of his ability to deceive his craftiness, and his nuanced lies, he will succeed in gathering innumerable amounts of soldiers from the four corners of the world to fight against Jesus at the end of the millennium. Even though Jesus is on this earth and has been on the earth for a thousand years, ruling in perfect righteousness and creating harmony between all cultures, Satan manages to gain multitudes of followers to him in a last-ditch attempt to overthrow Jesus Christ. Talk about a coup. That's what Satan is trying to accomplish. And he will have plenty of people on earth who side with him, which is terribly sad. Think of the fact that the world will have lived through absolute righteousness with the world being somewhat rebuilt and food tasting as as it's never tasted before since the Garden of Eden, though there will be plenty of resurrected people who no longer have a sin nature, incapable of sinning against God. People who are born during the millennial kingdom will still be born with sin natures and will still need to come to repentance and receive salvation in Jesus. It seems that there will be multitudes who live as they're supposed to live during this 1,000 years, but do so because of outward pressures to do so. It won't come from their hearts. It won't come from their hearts. This proves that the heart of man is desperately wicked and can only be changed by God's grace. Those people will do the right thing outwardly because of societal pressure and because of the fact that Jesus is right there, you know, making sure that people do what is right, but their hearts won't be in it. Consider the people who lived in absolute harmony with zero wars for a thousand years under Christ's rule, obeying God's law, in perfect 
environment, a perfectly peaceful environment that is completely unable to produce a perfect heart that is sold out to Jesus. Isn't that something? Their hearts are flawed because they're they're condemned by their own sin and easily deceived by the master deceiver, Satan. Now, Revelation 20, 11 through 15 highlights the great white throne judgment. This occurs after the millennial kingdom ends. Everyone who does not possess salvation in Jesus will be at this particular judgment and will be seen for what and who they are, people who stand literally against Jesus, that is the wicked, through to their hearts. Their actions, their thoughts, their words will be seen, and they will have absolutely no defense at all. They will know beyond any doubt that they are guilty and that they deserve the second death, which is the lake of fire. Notice also that Two books are open in this section at the final judgment. One is the book that highlights all their deeds and the things that they failed to do. Their deeds, their thoughts, their words, everything they failed to do. Their most egregious deed is actually not not exercising saving faith in our Lord Jesus, who died for their sin as well as yours and mine. The other book is the book of life, which lists only those who have authentic salvation. So the two books are used as a cross-reference for the life of the individual. The book of deeds is open, and then the book of life is open, where they are shown that their name is not listed there based on all of their deeds listed in the other book. There's no argument that they'll be able to offer that will change that. Their life speaks for itself. They can't sit there and say, well, Lord, I was spiritual. I was spiritual. I believed in something that won't be good enough. Lord, I was a good person. See what I did? I tried to do all these things. That won't be good enough. Nothing works except faith in Christ. So their life speaks for itself, and they will finally see and understand that fact tragically. They may deny it here. They might find excuses for it here. But there, at the great white throne judgment, they will have no ability to stand. So in a couple of weeks, we will have the final installment of this study of our book of Revelation, God's book. We will go over highlights of Revelation 21, which includes a look at the new heaven and earth along with the new Jerusalem. We will also cover highlights of Revelation 22, where Eden is essentially restored and presents a warning and a final invitation to everyone. Our Sunday night Bible study on Revelation will be at that point concluded in a couple of weeks, and then we will get into the book of Daniel, the prophet who also foretells many things that were to occur in the future from his vantage point. It's it's so fascinating that even Daniel, with his love for God, his wisdom, his understanding, will find that he did not understand many of the things he has shown that he wrote down in that book, shown by Gabriel and others. Well, thanks for joining me on this Revelation journey, and I I hope and pray that it has been beneficial, and it gives you the urge to deepen your study of that book, as well as other prophetic books of Scripture. Well, thanks for joining me, and until we meet again, I pray that God would open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 